Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The question of Palestine has long been a way to take the temperature of the Arab world. It draws in actors both in the region itself and beyond. Today we're looking at the history of the Middle East peace process. My name is Ene Mansour or Nazira and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Today my guest is Seth Anziska, who is the Mohammed S. Farsi Polonsky Lecturer in Jewish-Muslim Relations at University College London. His research and teaching focuses on Palestinian and Israeli society and culture, the international history of the modern Middle East, and contemporary Arab and Jewish politics. Seth is a visiting fellow at the U.S. Middle East Project and a 2019 Fulbright Scholar at the Norwegian Nobel Institute, and he's held fellowships at New York University, the London School of Economics, and the American University of Beirut. He received his PhD in international and global history from Columbia University, his MPhil in modern Middle Eastern studies from St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and his BA in history from Columbia University. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, the New York Review of Books, and the Pavilion of Lebanon in the 2013 Venice Biennial. And he is the author of Preventing Palestine, a political history from Camp David to Oslo, out 2018 from Princeton University Press, which is the subject of our interview today. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Nadira. So the book begins with your own reflection on your personal connection to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think it's a very bold choice. Um, I don't think many would feel that empowered to do so, but I think beginning with your own personal experience definitely both orients you historiographically, but also it makes the conflict feel a lot more lived. This is diplomatic history. I think often diplomatic history, and this is much of the book, is sort of politicians speaking in closed rooms to each other, these whispers here and there, um, and you painting the Palestine-Israel conflict in terms of what it looks like, you know, in more or less the present. I think helps orient the reader and realize that the stakes for this are quite high. So can you share with us your own personal experiences and tell us how it led to the exception, the inception of this project? Well, as I write in the book, the project really derived from spending uh, time on the ground in the West Bank um, before I started undergraduate university. Um, and this was an experience that led me to a yeshiva in the West Bank or a Jewish um, seminary for the study of Talmud, uh, Torah and Jewish thought, um, and it was a practice that was shared with many who grew up in the same modern Orthodox community that I lived in. And the reason I start with this is it is important, I think, to explain how and why I came to question or think about the history of Palestinian statelessness, because these were things I didn't see or understand or consider in the world that I was growing up in. And I know, of course, how sort of heavy these debates are in the historical profession about subjectivity, objectivity, and whether or not we should or should not be autobiographical about some of these elements. Um, part of the reason it's there is the encouragement of my editor, but also part of it is I think the books that I read uh, and that had a formative influence on me always try to explain 
the the where and the how the author came to this topic. And nobody who writes on Israel and Palestine, I think, comes at it without any sense of an investment of some sort. Um, and that, for me, was really important to convey. Um, what I would say specifically in terms of this experience, and, and this is something I talk to many people about who have been uh, in the West Bank, in Israel, or other parts of Palestine in 2000 or 2001, 2002, is that the experience of the Second Intifada or the Palestinian uprising was very much a traumatic one for anybody who lived it, be they Palestinian or Israeli, Jewish, um, uh, European American. And um, that trauma in many ways led me to think about the history as a coping mechanism because I realized how little I knew and how much I still had to kind of learn about the history of the conflict. Um, and in particular about the things that I didn't really understand, you know, the image that had been painted in the world that I grew up in about Israel and uh, the conflict with the Palestinians was very uh, monocausal, one-dimensional. There was no real sense of uh, where and how the Palestinian issue uh, emerged and what it meant in political terms. And so this is what really led me to kind of think about the history and the diplomatic history in particular of how and why Palestinian statelessness emerges and is continuing actually to the present day. So your book covers, it begins in the 1970s, uh, more or less when Carter becomes president. Uh, and this of course is after the defeat, uh, the Arab defeat in 1967 and then the 1973 war. So essentially I think what's important for our audience to realize is that in 1967, um, Israel re-annexes the West Bank and Gaza and, and retakes Jerusalem, um, parts of Eastern Jerusalem, that is, including the old city. And at this point, sort of the question of what will happen to a Palestinian state becomes a little bit more acute, especially after the fact that um, the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, is established in 1964 when the West Bank is still and, and Jerusalem are annexed to Jordan. So by the time we get to Carter, there's... The question of what will happen, I mean, you have this emergent Palestinian leadership, but you also have this Palestinian population that is under Israeli occupation. So that's sort of the background, I think. I think that's sufficient right now. So uh, by the time you get to Carter, he's this new actor on the scene. Um, he doesn't necessarily have the experience in foreign policy. And then Menachem Begin is elected in the same time period in Israel. And one thing that always strikes me, and I think it's because you have all these iconic pictures from Camp David. Um, so before I can remember, I, I can I can sort of see Carter's face um, between Sadat and Begin, and and then of course when I grew up in the '90s, Yasser Arafat was this huge personality, almost larger than life. And I suppose my question is, what is the role of personalities in the diplomatic history of of Palestine, Israel, and then in particular, because it's the title of your book, of preventing Palestine? Well, I would just step back for a moment and, and first clarify something about the, the importance of 1967 as a breaking point, but also acknowledging that for many scholars, uh, the question of 67 versus 48 is uh, very much in play and how they think about the history of Palestinian state prevention, because we need to consider that whatever it is that I'm uh, uh, writing about in relationship to Palestinian statelessness is part of a much broader, uh, uh, perhaps what Rashid Khalidi calls a hundred years war on Palestine, but something that extends back to uh, the mandate, um, even to late Ottoman times and, and all the way to the present. So I, I'm looking at a piece of a much larger puzzle, but I'm considering how the specific period in the aftermath of 67 
uh, is the first time where we actually can locate internationally the articulation of Palestinian demands for self-determination that are being taken seriously in global politics. And so that explains why it is that I'm focusing on the 1970s. I'd also say in relationship to the territories themselves, to the West Bank, Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, and elsewhere, they aren't annexed by Israel. They are conquered and they are occupied. And it's this decision not to decide on the fate of the territories, on not to annex them and not to grant the people who live their citizenship, but to kind of hold them in this liminal state that raises the question by the mid-1970s, how are, how are the Israelis, but also how is the international community to address these Palestinian claims uh, for self-determination? And here, I do think that personalities uh, are relevant because it isn't until Jimmy Carter comes to office in 1977 that you even have in the American political lexicon the consideration of the idea of a Palestinian homeland. Carter uses this term um, in a press conference in 1977. And at the same time, you see massive transformations within Palestinian politics. And in many ways, and this is a, a both a, a sort of acknowledgement of the, the role and importance of Yasser Arafat, but also his limitations, a, a kind of transformation internally in PLO politics by the 1970s, that organization, which encompasses so many different factions, has moved steadily towards this notion of partition, right? They've given up on the idea of the entirety of the land of historic Palestine, and they've moved towards what Yazid Sayyid calls in his work, uh, the, the move uh, away from armed uh, resistance towards a diplomatic engagement. Um, and, and that kind of process that's happening by the mid-70s um, is, is of course, then met with the third part of, of this triangle uh, of, of the role of the Israeli uh, government of Menachem Begin and the rise of the Likud. And this, I argue in the book, is also transformative because Begin brings an ideological approach to these territories that no longer is concerned with the, the sort of Labour Party uh, no, nominal idea of uh, uh, not knowing what to do or how to decide about the fate of the territories, but being very assertive and clear in the commitment to maintaining and enhancing the Israeli control and sovereignty in the West Bank, uh, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, um, deriving from a whole host of his own ideological um, approaches to, to, to the land and also to the question of the Palestinians. So in, in many ways, these are all figures who are very prominent and therefore play an outsized role, but also within the field of diplomatic and international history, I do think that these personalities matter a great deal. Of course, none of them are operating in a vacuum, nor do any of them operate outside of the confines of their own domestic constituencies and transnational elements like grassroots activism and international organizations. So part of the challenge is trying to think about these figures in concert with those other dynamics. So you just mentioned that in 1967 as part of this narrative, and so is 1948, and of course the mandate, often the way the mandate was set up, can be considered part of this narrative of, to borrow your term, preventing Palestine. Um, so since you just alluded to it, I want to ask, how are you changing the timeline and the narrative with your work? How does your work differ from the other histories of the peace process that sort of begins with Sadat at Camp David and, and, and goes on into the 90s and then fails in the 2000s? Well, part of, part of the problem is that the dominant existing accounts, whether they be Israeli or American or Palestinian, tend to ignore the 70s and the 80s. 
in terms of the peace process. Most of them start the story in the 90s. This is particularly problematic when you look at the memoirs of American diplomats who were engaged in the peace process. They very, very rarely talk about the role of the 1970s and 1980s in the story. And what I uh, argue and what I found in, in the research for this book is that it's only by understanding the 15 years prior to Oslo and the events around the Camp David Accords, the, the ways in which ideas like autonomy, uh, limited self-rule begin to animate and play a kind of role in the thinking about the Palestinian question, that you can understand why the situation in the 90s emerges uh, as it does. And in the 70s, you actually can see a great departure in the ways in which the Palestinian question is being dealt with, no longer as a humanitarian issue like it had been dealt with in the aftermath of the 1948 war, but very much in political terms. Um, and this is what distinguishes the 70s uh, for me as a kind of important uh, moment in time. Uh, I was probably influenced as well by the, the shifts in international history towards the 70s, the rise of a huge body of scholarship on human rights, the role of, uh, of, of Carter in this story, um, and thinking in many ways about Palestinian statelessness as part and parcel of that broader international historical moment, because we tend not to place this question in dialogue with histories of decolonization and histories of human rights and self-determination. So what happens if you put that uh, in conversation? How would it change the way we understand the emergence of the peace process? So in many ways, it's a plea to kind of look backwards and, 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 and think in different ways about the periodization uh, of the peace process, but also not to forget the connections that exist between the 70s and 80s with what comes before. And here, I'm indebted to the pathbreaking work of scholars like Shira Robinson, who force us to consider continuities from the mandate to 48 uh, and after, and thinking about the period between 48 and 67 uh, internally and what happens uh, afterwards as well. So I, I think we need to consider, uh, in many ways, the pieces of this much broader puzzle. Uh, how do you uh, think about periodization, but how do you in periodizing, which is sort of an essential tool of the historian, how do you also consider other works that are trying to make claims about other periods around the time that you do as well? Yeah, another thing I find difficult with my own work is that oftentimes, you know, one person's rupture is another person's continuity. So I, I mean, you just always have to keep in mind that there's there are all these different processes going on. And I think one such thing is that, um, I mentioned earlier that in 1964, the PLO emerges, and then there's 67, and then you have Black September in Jordan. And it strikes me as, as you speak that the 1970s also are important because this is when the PLO evolves into a more of a diplomatic actor. Do you think that's accurate or do you think that that's a little bit off? Yeah, no, it's very accurate. And the work of Paul Chamberlain as well is, is important on this score, that in the aftermath of 1973, the PLO is really undergoing its own self-reflection about how to engage globally on the question of Palestinian self-determination. The, the military resistance, the role of the Fidein are not enough or sufficient to create momentum for a political outcome. They recognize that the American role in shuttle diplomacy in the aftermath of 1973 and Henry Kissinger's approach in particular of breaking apart the different elements of the broader Middle East conflict and in many ways neutralizing Palestinian claims, which is something that uh, Salim Yaqub in particular has done a huge amount uh, to, to, really, to really explain and illuminate, there was a need to think about their own diplomatic strategy. And this is why you have 
Arafat at the United Nations in 1974. This is why you have moves in Europe towards the Venice Declaration, which is bringing recognition of the PLO uh, later uh, in the 70s, early 80s. All of these events are signaling a kind of way of thinking about Palestinian politics that is an innovation, uh, and it is a, a, a new moment in time, and it, it draws on the lessons that they've learned from other actors in the global south, but also the broader Cold War context and a desire to somehow maneuver out of this uh, morass around the 1973 war into a, a place of claim making that enables the possibility of their self-determination being taken seriously. So another character on the scene is the UN through its resolutions. And I think, I mean, many people are familiar with uh, sort of the right of return, uh, which was a UN resolution. So how were, I mean, we're also used to thinking of the UN as somewhat of an ineffectual actor, unfortunately, especially with regards to the Palestine question. So. I want to ask, how were the resolutions that were formulated both during this period and also during the 1960s received? And do, do they have a legacy? What sort of effects do they have? Mm. Well, part of the, the main uh, answer to the question is the PLO's reluctance to embrace or accept some of the UN resolutions on the Middle East, in particular UN Resolution 242, uh, which is uh, sort of solidified in the aftermath of 1967, calling for a return of territories in exchange for peace. Now, of course, we know there isn't specification in that resolution about which territories. The absence of the article the um, remains uh, a, a, a reality of the resolution and its limits. And there's also no mention of Palestinians as a people or as a political uh, collective. And so the PLO itself is struggling to accept the premise of 242, which it must if it is to be able to engage directly with the United States. Because in 1975, at Kissinger's doing, a ban was put in place on official dialogue between the U.S. and the PLO, which served in many ways to constrain the possibility of political engagement. So the PLO is trying to break that, and the American government is also trying to facilitate closer engagement. So when Carter comes to office, he and several mediators, including Walid Khadi, the uh, scholar and one of the founders of the Institute for Palestine Studies, uh, as well as uh, Quaker activist uh, Landrum Bowling, the president of Earlham College. They're all trying to mediate with Arafat and the executive committee of the PLO, often through Saudi and other channels, to figure out a way to bring the PLO into the political process. Because there's an understanding that if the PLO itself is not present, then others will act on behalf of Palestinian interests and perhaps not in the service of those interests. And in the effort that uh, Secretary of State Cyrus Vance, who's Carter's uh, uh, lead foreign policy advisor, makes uh, to engage the PLO and to get them to accept 242, he comes up empty. And part of that is because the executive committee of the PLO is not uniformly in agreement with the UN resolution. They're skeptical about whether it will actually secure them the possibility of return and of political rights. And they're not willing to concede on uh, the renunciation of violence and of all the requirements that have been asked of them in return for something that is uh, indeterminate. And that failure, or one can call it that delay or that uh, sort of struggle internally in the executive committee, shows you the ways in which the PLO itself is also a crucial actor in this history and the ways in which that delay serves the interests of others like Begin and the Israeli government, but also like uh, Anwar al-Sadat, the president of Egypt. 
So in that way, the UN is crucial. We also see later in the story the ways in which the United Nations serves uh, as a space where those claims are being articulated in other uh, in other power centers, but not by the United States. So uh, later in the story, uh, I, I recount uh, the work of Andrew Young, who's Carter's UN uh, ambassador, and who himself tries to engage surreptitiously with some prominent PLO officials, only to be uh, exposed um, by uh, intelligence operations and uh, subsequently fired unceremoniously by Carter. So the UN becomes the space where some of these conversations are taking place, but also where the limits of the diplomatic efforts are made very clear. So you mentioned Sadat and how of how sort of how the UN also becomes the space where people can. Um, reassert their own claims and how um, one person's actions has implications for another or plays into another one's hands. And in particular with Sadat, um, I think Egypt's role in the peace process speaks to, and I know I referenced earlier how Palestine can function as a barometer. So Egypt's relationship with Israel, I think, speaks very much to what regional balances of power look like, Um, especially during that period. I think later on you have Jordan and it figures into that as well. So how do, do regional balances of power uh, play into how the U.S. conducts its foreign policy uh, during your time period? Well, the, the obvious you know, factor here is the Cold War dynamic between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which is overlaid on events in the Middle East. Although, and I argue this in the book, not as explicitly as one might think in the case of Israel and the Palestinians, but it is present. And in the case of Egypt... This is where the Cold War does have a great deal of influence because Sadat, ever since he comes into office in 1970, is intent on moving the Egyptians away from the Soviet Union into the United States, uh, into the orbit of the United States. And that is about securing financial aid, about restoring uh, an economy that is uh, struggling, and also about orienting Egypt towards a Western uh, front in this broader Cold War context. For Sadat, that is very much the heart of his effort. Uh, as Craig Daigle, historian of the 1973 war, has argued, this is a war that is meant to break the stranglehold of detente. Sadat is trying to foment this violence as a means of uh, securing the return of the Sinai Peninsula and also gaining this American recognition. In many ways, the Camp David Accords, which is at the, the, the heart of the first half of the story of this book, is the kind of natural extension of Sadat's earlier efforts. He sees a peace with Israel, the return of the Sinai, as a means of securing uh, his move away from the Soviet Union towards the United States. So in that in that sense, the balance of power is crucial uh, for Sadat's actions. And Sadat in Carter sees a very close friend and ally, somebody who can in many ways accommodate and facilitate his legitimation in American political culture and in global politics. You know, in many ways, if we think back to the trip that Sadat makes to Jerusalem, this does more to change the image of Arabs and Arab Americans than most other events of the 1970s. Uh, And so Sadat is a transformative figure in that way, but it all comes very clearly at a cost to the Palestinians whom he is claiming to represent and whose interests he claims to have in mind. What we find when we look closely at the archival material and the evidence of the engagements that are happening privately is that Sadat is willing to sacrifice some of that rhetorical support in order to secure these bilateral 
uh, elements of peace with Israel. Uh, he's very frustrated with Arafat. He gets frustrated with the PLO. He begins to paint them as proxies of the Soviet Union, feeding into the same view of right-wing American neoconservatives who also try to paint the PLO as a Soviet proxy. And so in the process of engaging with Israelis, engaging with Menachem Megan in particular, I argue that Sadat gets drawn in to a dynamic that very much functions to disenfranchise the Palestinians. So one term that repeats itself throughout the course of the book is um, self-autonomy, self-rule, and self-rule specifically for Palestinians. Um, And this conceptions of how the Palestinians should ideally rule themselves, how they should enact self-autonomy, differ from diplomatic party to diplomatic party. So even though this might seem like a bit of a rhetorical question, um, how and why were the Israelis so opposed to different conceptions of Palestinian autonomy? Well, the key to this is that the Israelis do not see the Palestinians as a collective or as a nation deserving of self-determination. They see them as a political problem. In the aftermath of 1967, and here if we read the trailblazing work of Avi Raz about the, the June 1967 war, the debates within the Israeli cabinet are all different sorts of ways to avoid taking Palestinians seriously as political actors. So this is where you get the Alone Plan, the Dayan Plan, functional autonomy, all sorts of ways in which you can try and sideline the political claims of the people who are living in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem in the service of some uh, piecemeal uh, a solution that will ensure the Israeli retention of the territory itself. When Menachem Begin comes into office, he actually brings with him what he suggests is a much more benevolent approach to the Palestinian question, and this is his conception of autonomy. And he derives this idea very much from his own view of European history, of uh, his mentor, um, Ze'ev Jabotinsky, the leader of the revisionist Zionist camp, where he argues that Palestinians are essentially, which he calls them, Arabs of Judea and Samaria. They are not considered Palestinians in his view. They are deserving of individual rights. They are deserving of a better life. They are deserving of Uh, the rights of a national minority, but they are not deserving of collective political uh, uh, identity. And so in crafting his autonomy plan in 1977 and introducing it to the Egyptians, the Americans, and the Europeans into 1978, Begin thinks he's come up with an ideal solution to the conundrum of 1967. We will grant the Palestinians this limited form of self-rule, but no actual sovereign control over territory. They can control uh, internal movement, roads, uh, they can control some internal infrastructure, they can develop their school curriculum, they can encourage cultural production, but in no way can they actually control entry and exit, in no way can they control borders. And on top of this, Begin is very clear that the Israelis will always have the right to settle in the West Bank and in Gaza. And so he's in that way extending this notion of Israeli sovereignty beyond the Green Line while claiming that he is addressing the needs of Palestinians. At one point, he does entertain even the idea of citizenship uh, for the Palestinians. And of course, the seeds of that uh, would, would have, uh, if, if they had been enacted, which they aren't or they weren't, would have obviously led to a serious amount of demographic uh, uh, dilemma for Begin or, or for subsequent Israeli leaders, because we know that if that citizenship was granted, that the numbers would eventually... Um, lead to an Arab majority over a Jewish minority, which is not something that 
Begin himself would even have countenanced. He believed that the diaspora and Jews from abroad would uh, immigrate and, and, and make Aliyah to Israel, and this would enable them to secure a demographic majority. Um, but initially, his idea is uh, Palestinians are not a people deserving of rights. They're individuals deserving uh, some uh, form of uh, greater self-improvement and enhancement as a national minority. This is also the period that we see the settlements emerge, as you allude to. So can you elucidate how the settlements were handled in diplomatic dealings? Well, first, think about the settlements in conjunction with this concept of autonomy. If autonomy or limiting the notion of Palestinian self-rule or the rights of collective uh, a sovereign control is a kind of political, conceptual, top-down idea, the settlements are the bottom-up evidence and proof by which you extend your control and your presence in these occupied territories. So think about them in concert with one another, something from on the top, this notion of autonomy, and the actual expansion from below, which is the settlement project. Now, the, the first point to make here is that the settlements do not start with Begin and they do not start with the Likud. And this is uh, the, 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 the really important thing to remember. They are a product of labor-led governments in the aftermath of 1967. The Israeli scholar and journalist Gershom Gorenberg has done painstaking work to explain how and why this project emerges in 1967 uh, and is started by these labor-led governments. Um, and it really takes off uh, in the first few years under subsequent labor-led governments. But the ideological component of the settlement project and the infrastructure, infrastructural development idea of creating a kind of master plan of expanding settlements far beyond certain uh, supposed militarily relevant areas into suburban areas um, of uh, capturing private property and private land, of engaging uh, legal uh, sources in expansion. All of this is a product of the work of the Likud and uh, in particular of Ariel Sharon, who starts out as the agricultural minister and then as the minister of defense and is really the settlement czar under Menachem Begin. So when Begin comes in in 1977, uh, you have uh, somewhere between 2,500 and 5,000 settlers in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Um, by the time you get to the Oslo process, so on the eve of the Oslo process, that looks like over 105,000. Israeli settlers. That does not include, by the way, East Jerusalem. So if you consider that uh, difference, you realize how crucial the settlements themselves are as a kind of actor in this story. And it's the enabling of the settlement project, which Begin really pushes alongside Sharon, that is also made possible by a crucial shift in uh, political terms from the Carter administration to the rise of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, because this enables a shift in legal thinking about the settlements. Carter is deeply opposed to the settlements. He calls them illegal and an obstacle to peace. There is an official uh, ruling by the, the legal advisor to the State Department, Herbert Hansel, along these lines. When Reagan comes into office, and this is under the influence of neoconservative legal thinking in the United States, he promotes this idea that the settlements are in fact not illegal. They're merely obstacles to peace. On the basis uh, of uh, the arguments of legal scholars like Eugene Rostow, who later goes on to serve in the Reagan administration, that they were never actually considered occupied in the first place, um, and a very complex and somewhat convoluted uh, sort of approach to thinking about the territories, 
that was really having uh, its moment in the late 1970s and early 1980s. We see that Israeli legal thinkers build on this argument and it enables Begin to tell the American government, you see, your government is saying that these are not illegal. A double negative makes a positive. Therefore, they are illegal and legitimate, and I will continue to build them. So the, the settlements play a very, very large part in the political process of state prevention. And thinking about them hand in hand uh, is key because the political and diplomatic efforts to subvert or avoid contending with Palestinians in political terms in the 1970s is strengthened and emboldened by the physical expansion on the territory itself. I like that you characterize it as an actor because to my mind, whenever I try to sort of explain the basics of the Palestine-Israel conflict, uh, today, it boils down to the settlements, the refugee question, and the Jerusalem question as well, in addition to sort of how Palestinian leadership addresses Israeli leadership um, and rec- whether or not, for example, Hamas recognizes Israel's right to exist. So um, with regards to the refugee question, Jerusalem question, are they similar to the question of the settlements? Is it also this actor during your time frame and, and do they evolve in similar ways or are there divergences? Yeah, I mean, they, they do They do play a central role because Carter sees them at the heart of his own expansive, comprehensive idea of how to deal with the Palestinian issue. He wants Jerusalem on the table, and he wants the refugee question on the table. Um, they remain in play in the, the lead up to Camp David, but because of the fact that the Palestinian dimension is in many ways removed in favor of Egyptian-Israeli peace, they kind of take a sideline. But they reemerge in the 1980s when we get to Reagan's own ideas about what to do uh, with the Palestinians and also subsequent ideas in the aftermath of the 1982 war in Lebanon. So those two also change over time. Um, But in some ways, uh, they are always repeated as a kind of central um, uh, kind of, you know, component of any peace treaty will have to deal uh, with these two questions. I would say that the visibility of the refugee issue has changed by the 1970s. And that has something to do with grassroots activism. It also has something to do with the shift from Jordan to Lebanon of the PLO uh, and Palestinian politics, but also of greater awareness and understanding of the Palestinian issue itself. Um, And we can see uh, how the first intifada later in the 1980s also gives greater visibility to this question uh, of the refugees. So I have two questions about sources. And the first is tied into how you write about Palestinians and agency. And I can understand it would be very difficult sort of pre-Madrid to give agency to Palestinians, partially just because of the sources that exist. So how does one give agency to Palestinians um, when writing a diplomatic history that starts in the 70s and covers the 80s? Well, one of the ways you can do this, and this is something very aptly pointed out by Rashid Khalidi in Palestinian Identity, is thinking about sources uh, against the grain. So borrowing from the model of the subaltern school and considering how and in what way we can understand the voices of those who have been elided. And here I would point to specific examples. When I went into the Israeli uh, state archives in the early 2010s, all of the material from the autonomy talks that took place after Camp David were made available to me. Those are negotiations that took place between Egypt, Israel, and the United States from 1979 to 1982, which I argue formed the basis of this notion of limited self-rule for Palestinians, in many ways the basis of the Oslo Accords. And we can think about some of the architecture of the Palestinian Authority emerging first from those 
detailed negotiations. All those talks uh, were in many ways uh, at the heart of them were a discussion about what would forms of control for Palestinians look like. Of course, the Palestinians are not participating in these conversations, but we can see through the maneuvers, mechanisms, and ways in which other actors are trying to uh, uh, work around Palestinian claims and demands, uh, the ways in which their own uh, uh, insistence on true and meaningful sovereignty um, are, are represented. And this is exactly why there's so much opposition to those autonomy talks. And later on in the Madrid and Washington talks, why the actual material of the Egyptian delegation to these autonomy negotiations are actually provided to the Palestinian advisors in Washington as a warning and as a, a message of what not to allow to happen in the course of their own talks uh, with the Americans in the Madrid and Washington process. Of course, we know and we can now also see the records of Palestinian participation in those talks, uh, mostly from private papers of participants, that there was a very valiant and impressive effort made to restore or to preserve notions of meaningful sovereignty. Those were undercut entirely by the secret negotiations in Oslo and by the, the, the role of, uh, um, uh, of Abu Mazen uh, and, and others who negotiate a, a, a kind of a Palestinian uh, return to the West Bank and Gaza on the very basis by which the autonomy talks have been discredited. So limited self-rule, interim arrangements, no clear final status, or no clear attainment of sovereignty. So this is one way we can uh, understand agency. The other is also thinking about the fact that the Palestinians are secretly engaged in a whole host of discussions throughout this period. And we can see evidence of this in American and British documentation, but also in the Palestinian uh, uh, documents uh, of the Institute for Palestine Studies in Beirut, which contains reflections and reactions from different factions on the ground at the time. So we do have a way to get at Palestinian agency, but we also have to consider the structural reality of Palestinian exclusion from the diplomatic process. How can we write or think about the agency of an actor in a party that is being actively undermined or excluded from the very room in which the negotiations over their political fate is taking place? So when I've heard you speak previously on this book, and you just alluded to it, um, on this project rather than book, um, you've alluded to the fact you've stated that you, um, sorry, let me just restart. When I've heard you speak previously about this project, um, and you've just alluded to it now, there's the issue of the sources, the fact that when you were able to go in in the early 2010s, what's it, um, to these really state archives, central Zionist archives, um, a select sources that were previously unavailable were made accessible to you because the 30 year mark had, had, had shifted, had uh, ended. Um, but right now, the future of the Israeli archive, the state archives are, are in question. What is your take on it? And would you have been able to write this project if you were starting the fieldwork today? Well, first I should say that the declassification rules in Israel when I was working there were generous in the sense that the opening of material doesn't uh, follow the, the path of the U.S. where you have to request the material often be open and there are massive redactions. When the Israelis decide to open material, they tend to open it in full. But, and I write about this in the book, there's a caveat or several caveats. First is a question of access. Who gets in and who doesn't get into the Israel State Archives? Well, who does and doesn't get into Israel? So we have to think about privileges of passports, of ethnicity, of who's getting into Ben-Gurion Airport, who's being allowed in to do research, 
and patterns that we have of scholars who often have talked about material being requested and then being denied. Uh, we have this example, if we look uh, at the work, uh, again, of Shira Robinson, of Hila Cohen, of Shai Haskani, of scholars who have talked about material from sensitive topics being reclassified. So we have to consider access and whether or not material is actually being provided. In my case, I was able to get in and the material was open to me. And I was there at the moment when a lot of the material on Camp David and autonomy came out, but also on the 1982 Lebanon War, which is a big part of the second half of the book. Um, but now, because of efforts to digitize the archive, and because of the desire on behalf of the state archivist to try and make all of this material available online, they've closed actively the reading room to researchers. This is calamitous, in my view, because it means that you cannot physically go into that room and request files or find things that you might not ordinarily uh, receive or understand were present if you just asked for a digital record. Also, when you look at a piece of paper in an archive, you're looking for things that might be written on folders or on other sides or the meaningful adjacencies of random material in a particular folder. That is eliminated with digitization. How do we find or accidentally come across files if we're not able to physically rifle through a box? This is a big, big problem for researchers on Israeli and Palestinian history. Um, so we have to consider uh, the ways in which uh, th this, 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 this reality is, is, is taking root. And here I would point to the work of Akevot, which is a really important NGO in Israel that's working on access to some of these archives. But to answer the, the second part of the question, there is no way I would have been able to write this book without being able to go into the actual reading room of the Israel State Archive itself. And I think uh, we're going to see a serious a shift in the possible uh, kinds of histories that can be written as a result of, of this decision. It's all the more tragic just because access to other archives is increasingly limited. And uh, I mean, there's some states just don't allow access to their state archives. So it's, it's just, I mean, the way I think of it is that there's an archive crisis going on currently in the Middle East and it's, yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to add, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I would just say that there is something to be said about the struggle for access enabling us to write other sorts of histories as well. So part of the over-reliance on the state archive, and this is a point that's been very eloquently made in many conversations I've had with scholars like Mezna Chato and others, this also forces a kind of rethinking of different kinds of paradigms, moving away from nationalist teleologies, you know, considering other forms of sources, looking at artistic material, looking at in, uh, personal archives. So it's not all bad news in that way, but uh, on the whole, yes, I agree. I think that the, the, the lack of access uh, in this case is really uh, going to do a great deal of disservice to the historical profession. I also think it will push historians to think more like anthropologists, which we're not apt to do naturally because that's not how we're trained and we're sort of trained to see the disciplinary lines as very, um, sort of very, very firmly drawn. Um, and I wanted to sort of moving in that direction, um, oral history is becoming a bigger and bigger component of the way we're trained. It's definitely some aspect of how I was trained. Um, and you engaged in, what I can only describe of, of is, is the more human elements of the story. So 
Um, when I, once when I heard you speak, you alluded to a story of an Israeli pilot during the 1982 war. And I was wondering if you could use that as sort of a pivot to talk about um, the 1982 war uh, within the space of your book. Well, I became very interested as a result, in many ways, of some of the archival discoveries around uh, the 1982 war. I, I had been in the archive and been given access to material on Sabra and Shatila on the massacre of Palestinian uh, refugees in September 1982. It awakened in me an interest on the significance of 82. And in this broader book, the ways in which political and diplomatic efforts to suppress Palestinian uh, self-determination moved towards a military intervention in Lebanon by the early 1980s. And in the mind of the Israeli government, uh, and Sharon in particular, defeating the PLO in Beirut would be an extension of the possibility of state prevention. So I became interested in how 82 functions in this broader uh, storyline from the mid-70s until the early 90s. Uh, but in, in exploring more on 82, I also realized that it was a black box of Israeli, Lebanese, and Palestinian historiography. Very few scholars are writing histories of 82. Obviously, part of it is the, the relative, uh, re relatively recent access to sources, but part of it has to do with other moral and ethical questions and questions of memory that I think are only now beginning to break open. And so I became interested in starting to do interviews with many people who had fought or survived uh, or, or were veterans of 82 from the Israeli and Palestinian Lebanese end because many of them are now in their 50s, 60s, uh, early 70s and are much more apt to discuss uh, what they found, but also to realize that a disillusionment around 82, the sense of Israeli military overreach, this is seen as Israel's Vietnam, the calamitous results of this war for Lebanese and Palestinian civilians, the destruction of uh, Beirut in the process, all of these have led to a kind of uh, a, a, an opening of people wanting to talk more about 82. So the, the role of oral history becomes key. And as a result, and by chance, I ended up being introduced to an Israeli Air Force pilot who had been ordered in the context of the 82 war uh, on a bombing mission over Ain al-Hilwa refugee camp in Saida. And in, in talking to him and hearing about his story and a remarkable story of refusal to drop his bombs onto uh, what turned out to be the Saida school for boys uh, in, in, in Ain al-Hilwa, uh, and he instead drops these bombs over the Mediterranean, I thought a lot about how do we connect these structural, diplomatic, political angles with this human uh, experience and, and the actual reality uh, of, of war. And in subsequent visits in Beirut and research in the Arab Image Foundation, I was introduced to the work of Akram Zatari, a very prominent uh, Lebanese uh, artist who was a young boy in the 1982 invasion and whose work has done a great deal to uh, bring to light the legacy of uh, of Israel's intervention uh, in Lebanon. And I, I found uh, to my surprise and really uh, to, to my disbelief that what had been uh, uh, sort of happening in that war and what, what I had found out from the Israeli pilot had been mythologized in very different ways in Lebanon and had become this kind of rumor of a Lebanese Jew who refused to bomb the school where he attended as a child. Uh, and of course, only later to, to find out that this wasn't actually a Lebanese Jew, that the, the pilot himself was uh, originally uh, from a German background and had been uh, founder of the kibbutz movement. So the whole sort of complexity of this story got me thinking about cultural and social ways of remembering and writing uh, histories uh, across these different spaces and, and, and across uh, national boundaries. 
Uh, and I, I very much um, uh, admire the work of uh, Sirius Child in this respect because he tries to get us to think about what this region looks like without the imposition of the national boundary. How do things move between these different spaces? Um, and it's become the basis for a new project writing about um, uh, about Lebanon as a kind of a hinge point in modern Middle Eastern history, obviously in Israeli history and the changing perceptions of Zionism uh, globally, but also on a regional level, the introduction uh, or the rise of Hezbollah and the role of Iran in uh, Lebanese politics, all these are emanating from this particular uh, uh, war. But I also want to understand the role of this war on a kind of cultural and social level. The war uh, leads to a dystopian uh, move in Israeli cultural production. Uh, novelists like Amos Kenan, uh, Dalia Ravikovich, who is a poet who's writing in reaction to 82. Uh, there's a lot of interesting kind of uh, uh, a cultural uh, development that happens in the wake of 82. And I think the human experience is actually the way in which we can bring the structural, political, and diplomatic histories into conversation with something more cultural and social uh, at its core. And I, I see parallels with this in the Lebanese context. Many of uh, the interviews that I've had in Lebanon and the kind of production in Lebanon, cultural production around the war, signals a kind of parallel historical uh, struggle to come to terms with the meaning of the war and the fact that many of the actors involved in 82 are now playing prominent roles in Lebanese politics. So how do we uh, navigate uh, these uh, parallel uh, uh, sort of realities of Lebanese and Israeli um, selective memory about 82 and how we can maybe rewrite this war into the very fabric of uh, modern Middle Eastern politics. Well, that sounds like a very worthwhile project. So best of luck and congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much, Nadira. It's wonderful to be with you. It's absolutely wonderful to talk to you.